Let's pray once more before we dive in this morning. Father, we just want to pause before we engage in this event of preaching and listening and acknowledge before you that I want to acknowledge in the presence of all of my brothers and sisters here this morning that I'm not here to preach myself, but Jesus Christ. And we are here to know him better as he has revealed himself and as you have shown us in your word. So we pray this morning that you would give us the gift that is indispensable to this whole exercise. You say it in this very chapter that unless you reveal to us the true identity of your son, we will be blind to him. So we want to acknowledge our inability, our blindness, our deadness in our natural state to see the glory of Jesus. And we pray that you would give the Holy Spirit to us this morning, that those of us whom you have granted that revelation to, the vast majority of the people in this room would know him better, and that those who yet do not see him as he is would be given that gift this morning. You Only you can do that, and we ask you to do it. So as we move into this moment now, we pray that all of us would receive the implanted word with meekness, which is able to save our souls for the glory of Jesus and our good, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it is interesting. Those of you who were in Pastor Keith's Sunday school class this morning and heard Joe's opening comments at the beginning of the service, how much what we studied this morning dovetails with what we see in Matthew 16. The Lord does that sometimes where he's wanting us to get one message this morning, and I think that's what he's wanting to do, especially in light of what we studied in 1 Kings and now what we're studying in Matthew chapter 16. Joe even quoted for us this morning a text that was very pertinent to what we're going to talk about. Romans chapter 1, verse 25, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 the truth that by nature all of us when we are born and as we live, we, ex- we make a great exchange. We exchange the truth about God for a lie and we worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. So really, when it comes down to it, there are two religions. Two, that's it. There's lots of manifestations of one of them. But Paul tells us right here in Romans chapter 1 that we have two choices. We have the worship and service of the creation, or we have the worship and service of the creator. The worship and service of the creation is what Paul calls the lie, and the worship and service of the creator is what God or what Paul calls the truth. And Jesus uses that same similar language. He doesn't use the exact words that Paul uses, the truth and the lie or the worship of creation and the worship of the creator. But he uses the same concept. And we see it in the verses that Jason just read for us in Matthew chapter 16 at the end of verse 23. So if you've got that in front of you, look at it with me. He says to Peter when Peter is trying to get Jesus to not go to the cross and trying to persuade him that there's no way that that could be God's will for him. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We could say you're not setting your mind on the truth. You're setting your mind on the lie. You're not setting your mind on the worship and service of the creator. You're setting your mind on the worship and service of the creation. 
So this morning, I want to unpack how we can know the difference. I think that is a key text that unlocks this whole chapter for helping us understand what the things of man are and what the things of God are. And if you're in this room this morning, I trust that you want to know that what you believe and how you live is in accord with how God wants it to be and not how just man wants it to be. You want to love the truth, not just love and serve the lie. You want to be rescued from deception and brought into line and in accord with the truth. And this text will help us in that way. It will confirm for us what the things of man are and what the things of God are and how we can tell the difference between them as we listen to our Savior, Jesus, who would rescue all of us this morning from walking out of here operating with a man-centered mindset and help us understand truth-centered, God-centered, Jesus-centered, gospel-oriented living and what the difference are, differences are between those two. So I want to start with the things of man and unpack that. It's in the first 14 verses of this chapter. And in the second half of the chapter, we're going to focus on the things of God, verses 15 through 28. Let's start with the things of man. What are the ways in which religion operates in a man-centered understanding of things? Man invents religion. And we saw some of that last week with the way the Pharisees were interacting with Jesus and how Jesus was interacting with them. But here's a brief overview. I'm going to point out three things that the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and other people who were the religious leaders in Jesus' day, what they taught was right, but Jesus calls them the things of man, not the things of God. Here's the first one in the first four verses. A man-made religion, the way you can spot it, is that it makes demands of God. It makes demands of God. Look at what Jesus says here as he's interacting with the Pharisees and Sadducees in the first four verses of Matthew 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. See, what's going on here? They are putting, these religious leaders are putting themselves in the place to judge God. To make judgments about what's right and wrong and how God should interact with people. They make demands of him. Unless you do this the way I want you to do this, I'm not going to believe you. They try to get God to conform to them rather than us conform to him. That's classic man-made religion. Classic. Answer all of my questions, God. Prove yourself to me, God. That is what Jesus calls evil and adulterous. We're cheating on God when we do stuff like that. We're committing spiritual adultery. We're saying to God, I don't like the way you're revealing yourself. I'd prefer a different option. Doesn't convince me. Show me something different. This is completely different from what we saw last week with the Canaanite woman who has zero entitlement. She comes to God on his terms and says, whatever you can give me, I'll take, Jesus. No entitlement, no demand. And Jesus responds to her by forgiving her sin and reconciling her to God. 
Zero entitlement. Heals her daughter. And Jesus says, listen, I'm not going to play this game. I'm not going to give you any sign except one. The sign of Jonah. If you remember what that was, that's back in Matthew chapter 12. And it's referring to the resurrection. He says, you want to know that I'm really true and what I'm saying is true? Watch me get out of the grave after three days. Then you'll know. Then you'll know. And just search your history books and go back and see if it can be proven that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. Can't. See, the world is filled with people like this. They say things like, I know what the New Testament says, but I wasn't there. So unless I see Jesus, I'm not going to give him any consideration. We all we have all the evidence we need. Brothers and sisters, all of it. All people are under divine obligation to come to Jesus because he's the resurrected king. Coming to him is not an option. It's the requirement that God himself has laid upon the world, according to Acts chapter 17. When Paul's preaching, he says to them, here's God's command. He commands people everywhere to repent because he has set a day in which he will judge the world by the man he has appointed, Jesus Christ. And he has proven this by giving by raising him from the dead. There's Paul's preaching and his argument, and it settles it. But man-made religion makes demands of God. They want a sign. They want further evidence. They want God on their terms, not submitting to God on his terms. Second one, a man-made religion can sound right, but it's ultimately deceitful. Man-made religion sounds good. We're going to talk about some of the differences a little bit later. But just I want to, Because Jesus warns his disciples to be careful of thinking like this. Look at verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven, very important word, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, who brought no bread? I mean, don't you just love the disciples? They're just so literal. They don't ever pick up on any analogy that Jesus is trying to give them. It's like, Peter, did you bring bread? No. Did you, Thomas, you've got any? No. They're just still operating on a man level. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 12, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees. And Sadducees. See, why does Jesus use an analogy of leaven for teaching? Because leaven has an has a spreading, subtle effect on bread. Right? It spreads throughout the. You don't even know it's happening. And so he tells them, beware, be on guard against things of man kind of teaching. And he wouldn't warn them to beware of it unless they were susceptible to it. He says, beware when you hear people talking about things related to God. Be careful of that. Think about that. Test those TV preachers. Test that news anchor. Test those art, that, that reporter, those articles, what you read on the Internet, what you hear from other people. Be aware. It's leaven. It starts off, oh, that sounds pretty good. And before, before long, it works itself through the whole worldview. 
And then you have a worldview that's dominated not by the things of God, but by the things of man. I mean, you just hear this. Well, well, what that's true for you. It's not true for me. I mean, somebody deeply believes stuff like that. I had somebody tell me this week that. And I, I, it's just, it just baffles me. How can truth be that relative? It's because they've imbibed the leaven of the world. And it's worked itself out through their worldview. So the Pharisees and Sadducees, this group of people, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were sort of the Jewish ruling council. They were the ones who essentially ruled over all the various spheres of Jewish life. And But one thing was for sure, they were united in their opposition to Jesus, and they did not like him one bit. The Pharisees were sort of the conservative body of religious leaders who were held to strict observance of the law and traditions. We saw that last week. They were marked by self-righteousness. They kept the rules. Sadducees were predominantly from the wealthy class. They were well known for pursuing political and social approval and power, and they wanted people to know how important they were. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they were like, this life's all there is. Let's make the most of it. And they had the means to do so, and they were marked by self-indulgence. So Jesus looks at these self-righteous people and these self-indulgent people who both keep the rules and adjust the rules, and he says, that's false teaching. That's leaven that you need to be aware of. That's how religion is usually operates. It's ba- it's how, that's what religion based on the teaching of men works. It's fixated on keeping the rules or adjusting the rules. Self-righteousness or self-indulgence. One more about the differences here. We've seen that a man-made religion makes demands of God in the first four verses. A man-made religion can sound right, but it's ultimately deceitful in the verses 5 through 12. One more. A man-made religion sees Jesus only as one option among many. A man-made religion sees Jesus as only one option among many. Look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. See? Just thinking on a human level. He's a prophet. He's one option. we got lots of prophets. He's just one of the other ones. So many people see Jesus as just one option among many. Just another prophet. Just someone else trying to teach about God. But listen, brothers and sisters, if Jesus was just a prophet and not the Son of God, he was a false prophet. Because he taught that he was more than a prophet. But you see what's going on here? Self-righteousness and self-indulgence will blind you from seeing and knowing the real Jesus. That's what's happening to the Pharisees and Sadducees. They can't see him. They're too busy adjusting the rules and keeping the rules to see Jesus. Let me give you some of the differences here between the things of God and the things of man, or what I'm calling religion and the gospel. Here's how you can spot some differences between religion or the things of man, the man-made religion, and the gospel that Jesus himself preached. Here's how the difference in acceptance. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's what the Pharisees taught. What does the gospel say? No, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. 
What about motivation? How does motivation work in man-centered religion? Motivation is based on fear. You better do this. Or insecurity. But motivation based on the gospel is motivated by a grateful joy for what we've received. What about obedience? In religion, I obey God in order to get things from God. In the gospel, I obey God to get God. To delight in God and resemble him. What about circumstances? In religion, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself since I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. In the gospel, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know my punishment fell on Jesus and that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. What about criticism? In religion, when I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it's critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to self-image must be destroyed at all costs. In the gospel, when I'm criticized, I struggle, but it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. What about prayer? In religion, my prayer life consists largely of petition, which is asking God for things. And it only heats up when I'm in a time of need. My main purpose in prayer is control of the environment. What about the gospel? My prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with God. Confidence. In religion, my self-view swings things between two poles. If I, if and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident. But when I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I'm not living up to standards, I feel humble but not confident. I feel like a failure. In the gospel, my self-view is not based on my moral achievement. In Christ, I am simultaneously sinful and lost, yet accepted in Christ. I am so bad that he had to die for me, and I am so loved that he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deep humility and confidence at the same time. And then finally, one more about identity. In religion, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am, or so I must, and, and so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. But in the gospel, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. I am saved by sheer grace, and I can't look down on those who believe or practices something different from me, because only by grace am I am what I am. Now, those come from Tim Keller, and you can look up those if you want. You can just type in Tim Keller, religion versus the gospel, and this will pop up. So if you want those, you say, I'd like to read those again. Well, you can. It's called Google, and you can do it. (laughs) Believe in you. All right. So that's the things of man, all right? So it it's, makes demands of God. It, 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 it's very subtle and deceitful, and we have to be careful of it. I mean, how many of those, as I read through those, thinking, even as Christians, I think that way. I think that way. This is why God has to give us commands like, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because as Christians, we don't get a completely renewed mind right away. We get a new mind, we get the mind of Christ, but we still have old, bad, man-centered ways of thinking. And we, the, our lives are constantly, the sanctification journey is learning to think God's thoughts after him. It's learning to conform my mind to what the gospel and Jesus says about me and not what I think or how I feel. And that's the fight of faith much of the time. So that's the things of man, all right? Making demands, tempted to be, be, perhaps be deceived, and just thinking of Jesus as one option among many.
Let's go to number two then, the things of God. This is where we want to really understand because this is the teaching of Jesus, not the scribes and the Pharisees who would just teach us the things of man, but we're going to learn from Jesus the things of God. And there's three things that Jesus is going to show us in verses 15 through 28. All right, and they're these, three Bs. We can remember these. Believing, belonging, and becoming. That's what Jesus is after. That the things of God have to do with believing the right things that he teaches, belonging to the right community, and becoming a Christ-like person. Those are the things of God. Let's dive into those. First of all, believing in the true Jesus, verses 15 through 17. On the heels of Jesus asking who his disciples, who do people say that I am, he asked Peter specifically, or verse 15, or he asked the, the disciples, and then Peter responds. He says to them, verse 15, but who do you, disciples, say that I am? And Simon Peter, always the quick, quick, quick one to answer, he would have answered every question in the Sunday school class. No doubt he'd have been the first hand up. He was always the first one up. So Simon Peter replies, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he just, yeah, am I right? And he was right. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. He got it right. He got it right. He said, you are the Christ. You are God's promised prophet and Messiah, the last and final declarative word from God. You are him. You are the one that we have been waiting for, that God has promised since Genesis chapter 3, who would come into the world to redeem the world and to rescue people from Satan's bondage. You are that one. You are God's anointed one. You're his king. You're his Christ. You're his Messiah. The son, the eternal son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't say, no, that's not who I am. I'm just a prophet. Don't you understand? I'm one option among many. I'm just a good religious teacher. No, he says, you're blessed, Simon, because God showed that to you. And that's the only way you would say that. That's the only way anyone would say that. Knowing the real Jesus requires the intervention of God in your life. Bottom line, that's what Jesus said. If anyone is going to say Jesus is Lord, it is going to be because God revealed it to them. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, you can walk around and say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. You can say it. That doesn't mean, I'm talking about living functionally day by day under the Lordship of Christ. That doesn't happen apart from the Holy Spirit. You can say it, but to live practically in a way under the Lordship of Christ where you believe what he says and you make war on your sin. You can't do that except by the Holy Spirit. To recognize Jesus as the Christ is to come into line with the truth of God. And we see that to come into line with the truth of God means not only that we recognize that Jesus is the Christ, but what kind of Christ he is. And this is where the disciples struggle, struggled a little bit in the passage that Jason read for us in verses 21 through 23. Because they have this idea of what kind of Christ 
Jesus should be. And Jesus says, I'm not the kind of Christ you think I am. I'm the suffering, dying, rising kind of Christ. And you need that for the forgiveness of your sin. But, you know, Peter should have known this. It's not like it's not like the disciples. I mean, the disciples were, according to Acts, they were ordinary, untrained men. They didn't have a vast seminary education, you know, when they came into followership of Jesus. And they just, you know, they knew all this stuff. They didn't. They were ordinary guys. But one of the things that that Jesus is saying here about him being a suffering, we see that in verse 21, his disciples that he must go to the Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day arise. And Peter says, no, 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 far be it from you, Lord. That's not going to happen. See, Jesus understood that the Messiah who was to come, the Christ who was to come, is the same Messiah that was described by Isaiah in Isaiah 53. That he would be a suffering servant. We read in Isaiah chapter 53 in the Old Testament, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, a suffering, dying, rising Messiah is God's idea. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, Isaiah says, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, God, has put him to grief. You know what? Peter eventually got this. Peter doesn't get it right here in Matthew 16. He doesn't get it that Jesus can be a suffering, dying, rising Messiah like Isaiah 53 said he would be. He doesn't get that. And he says, so he rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus rebukes him. Isn't it amazing how as disciples, and this is just, I just want to encourage you with this, brothers and sisters, this morning, that you can be simultaneously wise and stupid and be a Christian. Isn't that great? I mean, we are sim- we are just a mess. We're an absolute mess. you got Jesus saying to Peter right here in verse 16, he, this A-plus award on the theology exam, The doctrine of Christ, he gets exactly right. And then one question later, he gets it exactly wrong. We can be so right in one moment and then have a terrible fall in the next. And Jesus treats us with great love and patience. He's got all the time in the world for people like that. And that's what we should be thankful for because that's me. I'm wise one minute and stupid the next. And this is what we see in Peter. I mean, he's called, he's like, yes, Peter, on this, and we'll say this in a minute, on this rock, on this confession that you've made on this rock, I'm going to build my church using a, a word play with Peter, Petros, rock. And But then later he says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me for you're not setting, you're a hindrance, literally, you're an offense. You're a stumbling stone. So we got rock earlier in the verse. We got stumbling stone later in the verse. And that's Peter. And that's us. But Peter eventually got it. And when we read in Acts chapter 2, his preaching on the day of Pentecost, we read these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He got it. He got it. That it was God's will that Christ be crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, 
loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That one man who's in this passage saying, get behind me, Satan, it's never going to happen, or that that Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan, and said, far be it from you, Lord, no, you're never going to do this. That same man stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached with great boldness that Jesus died, rose again, that all those, all people need to repent and believe in him. There's Peter, transformed, transformed. In the moment, he's struggling, but he was transformed by the resurrection of Christ. So he eventually got it. So that's, That's the first big idea, is that the things of God center on the person of Jesus. And any religion that does not get Jesus right is not God, is not of God. And that's why that you have, there's only one religion that teaches that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, the exclusive son of God. And that's Christianity. So believing is critical. And now second, belonging is critical as well. Belonging to the church. Verse 18, after Peter says this great announcement, declaration that Jesus is the Christ, he says, and I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Not at that moment. So, what does Jesus say on the heels of Peter's confession? He says that he's going to build a church. He's going to build a church. Which is not a place. It's a people. It's a group of people who belong to Jesus. And so part of the things of God is the church. The church. What we're here gathered as this morning is part of the things of God. This is what God wants. Is that believers in Jesus, the true Jesus, would gather together or be gathered together as one universal expression which will fill the new heavens and new earth one day, but now in this age would be characterized by little local expressions called churches. He doesn't want it. We we are, yes, we're part of one big universal church, but he wants us in expressions of that church. Now, he's not talking about that in this particular passage. That's filled out in the New Testament. But what we see here is that Jesus is concerned with building a people around him. And I'll tell you what, I, I, I mean, we live in a day and age where Christ is attempted to be severed from his church, where people will actually say things like, you can be a Christian, you don't have to be a member of a church. Jesus didn't believe that. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you're going to belong to the people who believe in me. They're going to be your new family. Now, there is no direct command in Scripture that says every Christian must join a local church. But there are two factors in Scripture that indicate that every Christian should be a member of one. First of all, when Jesus established the church to be a public, earthly institution that would mark out, affirm, and oversee those who profess to believe in him, when he established that church, he did it to publicly declare those who belong to him. In order to give the world a display of the good news of himself. 
That's what Ephesians 3.10 said, that, that, that the church exists to, 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 to display in the manifold wisdom of God in his salvation. And so, how is the world to know who belongs to Jesus and who doesn't if there's no church? They are to see which people... The world is meant by Jesus. Jesus wants the world to know who belongs to him and who doesn't belong to him. They are to see which people publicly identify themselves with his people in the visible public institution that he's established for this very purpose. They're to look at the members of his church... And if some people claim to be part of the universal church, even though they belong to no local church, they reject Jesus' plan for him and for his church. Jesus intends for his people to be marked out as a visible public group, which means joining together in local churches. And just one other point, just to slip this in here. If you read the New Testament and you read the letters of Paul and his addresses to the churches, you repeatedly see him commanding Christians to submit to their leaders. So my question would be, the only way that they can do that is if they are committing themselves to be members of a flock in which there's oversight and leadership. Right? So saying, in effect, I commit to listening to... I mean, they're saying, I commit to listening to my leaders, my following their direction, submitting to their leadership. But there's no way to obey those scriptural commands to submit to your leaders if you never actually submit to them by joining a local church. So Jesus... My whole point is, we could talk about that a long time, and this is not meant to be a whole sermon on the doctrine of the church. It's just meant to stress this point, that with Jesus, the things of God, the truth of God is intimately connected to the life of the local church. And Jesus is building a church. And if there has ever been a more important time to be a part of the local church, it's now, I would argue. I mean, these are days in which, uh, if you look at, you know, the world as it's going, it's, it's quite fearful. I've, I read this this week. Um, this is an article by Kent Hughes called The Indispensable Church. I believe it'll be behind me. And I just want to read a, a portion of this where he talks about the indispensability of the church for the Christian. He says, quote, The entire Christian life is about commitment, first and above all to Christ, but also to the church, to family, to marriage, to friendship, to ministry. None of these will ever flourish apart from commitment. It's my considered belief that those who do not have the local church at the very center of their lives are likely not to make it as Christians through the opening decades of the third millennium. We're on a tide of unparalleled cultural change, exponential religious and ethical change. Very often, those who live through a revolution do not know it. Most of you do know it, and you know that it's picking up, very much like the Starship Enterprise when it kicks into warp speed. Postmodernism, some of you all appreciate that, Trekkies out here. Postmodernism is moving at gale force. The elites deny the existence of any universal truth or morality. Today, we can no longer simply defend our faith as true. We must first defend the very idea of transcendent universal truth. Pluralism is also at high tide. The one thing that relativistic pluralism cannot tolerate is a person who believes that he or she has the truth. So if you claim to have the truth and you humbly insist that it's true for everyone, you're arrogant, you're to be watched, you're not good for society because your insistence that you are right is divisive. And the claim that Christ is the only way is particularly offensive. Volcanic cultural changes lie ahead. The world as you know it today will be vastly different in 15 years. And given the trajectory, it's sure to be less hospitable for the exclusive claims of historic Christianity. This is why all who have determined to follow Christ desperately need the church. They need it for the things that it alone can supply in the precise ways that are needed.
You know what? You know why we have had this cultural idea of, you know, you can have Christ, church is optional. We haven't faced persecution. Get ready for persecution. When persecution comes, you're going to need your brothers and sisters because they're the only ones that are going to visit you in jail. Brothers and sisters, we need to have a, we are living in a unique time, unparalleled to the history of the church, that we've had this much religious freedom to be Christians without, without, and I'm not some doomsday prophet up here. God knows, may God send revival to our nation and spare us for his glory. But I don't know what's going to happen. And as you just, Jesus tells us, you know, observe the signs of the times. Try your best to understand where culture is going and what, what it's going to cost to be a Christian. But these words that Jesus is going to speak to us later on are going to be more important the longer we live. And so we need, to, we need to listen carefully to our Savior and count the cost. And one of the ways we count the cost now is by linking arms with our brothers and sisters in meaningful, 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 meaningful relationship and fellowship. Not just attending an event together on Sunday morning. So... I'm going to skip the skip the rest of the article for now, but it's just just to underscore the importance of that, that the church is indispensable. Jesus said it was indispensable. It's on the confession of Peter that that he's going to build this people of God and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We'll get to that here in a second. What's this whole idea about the keys? Verses 19, verse 19, where he says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. This could, again, this could be a whole other sermon. But I know it, it raises questions, and so I, wanna, I want to address this verse in particular because I think it's misunderstood in large, in large measure. Here's what Jesus is, is basically saying to Peter, is that when we proclaim the gospel as the church, when you proclaim it as a Christian or when it's proclaimed by the church collectively, it's done under the authority of Jesus. We proclaim the message of Christ under the authority of Christ. And this means that we can say to any person in the world, If you will turn from your sin, and we could say this to you this morning, if you're in this category, if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus as Savior and as Lord, you can be free, you will be free from sin and its punishment and its deserved eternal punishment in hell forever. And guess what? When the church preaches that and people respond to that message, it's as though Jesus himself, because he is, is preaching through that message and writes it down in heaven as well. That's amazing. That's amazing that what's done in terms of the preaching of the gospel, that there is a guarantee based on the authority of Christ and his word, that when the gospel is preached and people believe it, the record books switch in heaven too. And people move out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. So what... The church sees is what Jesus himself affirms. But there's a negative side to that. At the same time, we can also say to the world that if you do not turn from your sin and you do not trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, then you are bound to your sin and to its payment for all eternity in hell. And the authority from Jesus has been entrusted to the church to proclaim his message. As long as the church gets the message right. And guess what? If the church doesn't get the message right, it's not a church. It's not the church. The, the foundational pillar on which the church is built is the, the correct understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is his message? If we don't get that right, or if, if, if a group of people don't get that right, it's not a church. It can call itself a church and put church on the sign. But it's not a church in terms of what Jesus believed because it was on this confession that Jesus said he would build his church. 
He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the point is, is that the keys of the kingdom idea here is that when we tell people the message of the gospel and that their response to it determines whether they will be in heaven or hell, whether they're in the kingdom of heaven or not, again, it's all based on the authority of Jesus and his message. We're not preaching ourselves. We're preaching Jesus. And so when a person responds to that message that Jesus has entrusted the church to preach, heaven agrees. Here's what John MacArthur says in summarizing it. When the church says an unrepentant person is bound in sin, the church is saying what God says about that person. When the church acknowledges that a repentant person has been loose from that sin, God agrees. So when we preach the gospel and we say to people, if you will repent of your sin and you will believe and you do, God agrees. All right? Because they're responding to the message of Christ. And here's the good news, church, that no matter what things come up in our culture, Jesus has made a, a, a solemn promise in verse, nine, verse 18. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The church will keep marching on. It might be killed, but it will never be eradicated. The church will continue as long as Jesus wants it to, which is until he returns to rescue his church and to make the the kingdom of earth the kingdom of heaven. So that's our good news, and that's where we can rest our confidence that that, that as we join together as the church, we are part of a unbreakable union with our Savior, and he will not permit us to be destroyed. We may be killed, but we will not be destroyed. So that's the second one. And lastly and quickly, a third one. So we've talked about the things of God are believing the true Jesus. It's belonging to the, to the church. And it's becoming like Jesus. Becoming like Jesus. And here's how Jesus says we are to become like him. Picking up verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So there we have Jesus' words to his disciples on the heels of this announcement that he is going to be a suffering, dying, rising Messiah. And he says to his disciples, listen, the path that God has me on is the path that God has you on. I mean, imagine hearing that as the disciples for the first time. I mean, you think that this Christ is going to usher in the kingdom of God and that you're going to be a part of it And that's why they're arguing about who's going to be first and I want to be there. But Jesus says, I have a cross to bear and you've got a cross to bear. I've got to deny myself. You've got to deny yourself. I've got to follow my father. You've got to follow me. If you want to save your life in this life, if you want to try to keep it back, from the cross, if you want to keep it back from self-denial, if you want to listen to the Sadducees and say, yeah, man, you can indulge. You can have this world and have heaven. 
If you want to buy that leaven, you can't, you're not a disciple of mine. So if you want to try to keep your life and save it, preserve it, play it safe, don't be risky, don't venture all onto Jesus and discipleship to him, so you'll lose your life. But if you'll lose your life now, you'll gain it. You'll find it. Then he makes another argument. Listen, what if you get it all right now? What if you get it all right now? You can have everything. But when you die, it's all gone and you're in hell forever. You forfeited your soul. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? So love your soul. That's what Jesus is saying. Love your soul that's going to live somewhere forever and ever and ever. And then he, then he reminds us of the great promise that he's going to come again and he's going to repay each person according to what he's done. And so don't be afraid that that will be the end for you. No, your life will be found on the other side of your death to self. So, brothers, I just want to, and sisters, I just want to point out one more um, particular insidious form of Sadduceic leaven in our culture which is a prosperity gospel. There are churches in our own community that preach it. And it's damnable heresy. It says that you can have everything that you want right now. Everything. God wants to bless you. He wants to give you a big house. He wants to give you money. He wants to eradicate cancer from your body. And if you have it, it's your fault, not God's fault, because you don't have enough faith. And all this stuff, and that runs completely contrary to everything we're reading from the lips of Jesus this morning. That is deadly, damnable, out of the pit of hell, poison for people's souls. And people are drinking it down by the dregs. And these false prophets are building their empires on the back of poor women who are desperate for help. And it makes me sick. Because it's Sadduceeism. It's all it is. It's lev- It's saying, you, man, we, we can get it all now. Look, this is, look, it is true that we will one day inherit the new heavens and the new earth. My problem with the prosperity gospel is not the promises they make. It's when they promise to give them. Jesus doesn't say we get it all now. He says lose it all now. You'll get it all later. It's easy, easy peasy, man, to live a life where Jesus is padding your house, taking care of you, blessing you like crazy. Who doesn't want to follow a charlatan like that? It's easy to do that. It requires no supernatural regeneration of a human soul to say, I want more stuff from Jesus. Zero new birth required. You know what requires the Holy Spirit? What Jesus says right here. Self-denial, taking up a cross, following him, losing our lives for his sake. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. So don't, and I'm confident that most of you don't buy that jargon. But you're living in a community filled with people who do. And may you speak up lovingly, (laughs) but graciously and courageously for Jesus on this. Because it's not helping people get to heaven. People who are buying that nonsense wholesale. Here's what J.C. Ryle says. He says, there's deep wisdom in the saying of our Lord's when viewed in connection with the preceding verses. He knows the heart of a man. 
He knows how soon we're ready to be cast down and like Israel of old to be discouraged by the difficulties of the way. He therefore holds out to us a gracious promise. There will be glory, honor, and reward in abundance one day for all who have served and loved Jesus. But it is to be in the dispensation of the second advent and not of the first. Which means that his second coming, not his first coming. The bitter must come before the sweet, the cross before the crown. The first advent is the dispensation of the crucifixion. The second advent is the dispensation of the kingdom. We must submit to take part with our Lord in his humiliation if we mean to ever share in his glory. So to summarize, and then we'll pray. To summarize, the things of man that we've considered this morning from Matthew chapter 16 are marked by self-indulgence and self-righteousness. But the things of God are marked by self-denial. They're marked by believing, belonging, and becoming. Believing, recognizing that Jesus is not a mere man, but the God-man who came to suffer and die and rise for us and for our salvation. It's about belonging, committing ourselves to his church and to his mission in the world. And it's about becoming, following in his steps as we take up our own cross, Give up the right to call the shots in our own lives for the sake of his glory and the kingdom of Jesus. So where do you find yourself this morning? Are you setting your mind on the things of God or on the things of man? Let's pray. Father, how we need so much of this medicine for our souls. Jesus, we thank you that you knew how to speak tough words to us and you knew how to speak tender words to us. We, as your disciples, need both. We need you to speak tenderly to us and remind us that though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God had willed his truth to triumph through us. We need words like that from you. We need help along the way because we're so tempted to be disheartened and so easily faint and so easily struggle. And we thank you that you treat us like you treated Peter with tons of grace. Tons of compassion, tons of mercy. You say hard things to us that we often don't want to hear, but we thank you that in the midst of it, there is medicine for us and healing for our souls. And so as we think about these things this morning and as we meditate on what it means to truly be part of your church, belonging to Jesus, belonging to the church, becoming more like him, we pray for grace. Give us grace as your weak, weary, the sinful disciples to keep pressing on, persevering grace to conquer and to count not our lives as precious even unto death. We ask for the glory of Jesus. Amen.